Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. You guys can be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us. And uh, some of you already know this, uh, but many of you don't. We have the most incredible people at Horizon West Church, most incredible volunteers, uh, servant leaders. Um, That's true all over the campus. That's true on Sundays. It's also true during the weeks. And one of the evidences of that this week is our women's event, Tidings and Tinsel, which took place yesterday morning. How many of you women were able to be a part of that event? Give me a little shout out or something here. There we go. All right. Awesome, awesome event. We had over 100 women. Um, I was not there, but I've heard that we had over 100 women gathered for this event. I want to give a shout out to Holly uh, Newton, who's leading our women's ministry as a volunteer and doing a phenomenal job. If I started naming the others, I would leave out people who are critical to making that happen, but you know who you are and thank you. Um, And keep an eye open, maybe two eyes open for events like that for both our women and our men after the, the new year. So, Uh, So excited for what God is doing here at Horizon West Church. Uh, Most of us probably don't remember what songs were popular when we were 10 years old. Uh, We remember the songs that were popular when we were 18, right? Like when we graduated high school and, you know, for me that was a Green Day song, uh, you know, and, and, and we've all got that. But when we're 10, we probably don't remember what was popular at that time. I, however, do remember what was popular when I was 10. Because 10-year-old Chris in 1992 uh, was not exposed to a lot of pop culture. I was protected, let's say. Um, And I was on a a baseball trip to Pensacola with my all-star team. And remarkably, I would never do this for my kids, but I went alone among my family. I was there with my team, my coaches, uh, but about a a seven-hour trip away from family for an entire week. And I learned a lot of music that week. 1992, and so some of the songs that were popular at that time, you might remember a song called Jump by Criss Cross. It made us all want to turn our shirts and jeans backwards, right? Okay. Another song that was popular at the time was Achy Breaky Heart by Billy Ray Cyrus. For those under 40, that's Miley's Dad. That was a popular song. Um, and another song, less popular at the time, but which has actually become more popular since 1992 when it was written, made popular by things like Saturday Night Live and The Office, was a song by Hathaway that asked the question, what is love? If you suddenly feel the urge to bob your head to the side, (laughs) Night at the Roxbury style, uh, you you remember the song. Song is incredibly shallow uh, and it gives no answers, (laughs) provides no uh, input. I'm really disappointed in the philosopher Hathaway for not clearing that up for us. What is love? It's a silly song. But it's a very serious question. And fortunately, we do not have to refer to pop music or movies or TV shows or whoever the cultural icons are of the day because the Bible is very clear to the question, what is love? It gives us the answer. Last week as we dived into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we saw several different what we called insufficient substitutes for love or false substitutes for love. Those included dynamic speech, spiritual insight, impressive faith or powerful faith, and also sacrificial action. 
The reason that each of those things is an insufficient substitute for love is that each of those is an external manifestation of something. It is not the thing itself. And each of those things requires circumstances for them to be put on display. So for instance, if I have faith that can move mountains, but there's no mountains to move, what is my faith? If I have the desire to sacrifice my body, but there is no great cause for which to sacrifice, what is that sacrifice worth? Love, however, operates differently. Because as love is defined in the scripture, and especially in 1 Corinthians 13, we learn that it is somewhat boring, practical, monotonous, everyday, invisible, internal characteristics that can demonstrate themselves through simple tasks like changing a diaper or listening to a spouse or friend, responding to an email. See, sometimes love is easier when there's some great act to take, but we sometimes take the day off when there isn't. And scripture is very clear, if we're going to build a life based on love, then we've got to meet the challenge day in and day out. Today we're going to look at 15 attributes that are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly touch on those. We're going to read the passage, but then I want to group those 15 characteristics into three what I'm calling essential commitments. Because if you are not ready to commit to these three essentials, you might give it your best shot. You might look like love for a while, but these attributes will eventually break down if you don't hold to three commitments. And then I'm going to conclude with a practical call to action. Before I get to that, I want to ask this question. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that I become a more loving person? Um, on my way to answering that question, I want to share a parable that I wrote on Thursday. It is about a man who was asked by his wife to run to the grocery store for baking soda that sh so that she could bake a cake for their daughter who was having a birthday party. The man, being a good husband, jumped up, ran out to the car, got in, closed the door, and immediately noticed that the car was absolutely trashed. Man, I don't know if you have this experience, but sometimes in our family vehicle, that's the situation. And so this individual says, you know what, the car is dirty, but that's not my assignment, so I can't worry about that right now. He makes his way out of the neighborhood, but before he gets out of the neighborhood, the low fuel light comes on. He's doing the math. He can probably make it to the store, but while he's out, he might as well fill his wife's car up with gas. And so, fortunately, there's a gas station on the way. The man pulls in, begins to put gas in the car, and then he remembers the car is dirty and says, well, while I'm putting gas in the car, I'm a man so I can multitask. <laughs> and he cleans out the car. And fortunately for him, there is a vacuum station right next to the gas station. And so he drops a couple quarters in it and he begins to vacuum out the car. And he only takes a little longer than he would have anyway, except that next to the vacuum hose is an air hose. And he remembers that he hasn't checked his wife's tire pressure in a while. And he spends the next 10 minutes on his hands and knees pumping his wife's tires up with air. The man then finishes his tasks at the grocery store and makes his way to, or rather at the gas station, and makes his way to the grocery store. But before he enters the grocery store, there is a volunteer with the Salvation Army ringing the bell. The man remembers he'd put several quarters in his pocket for the air. He had two left over, drops them in, and walks into the store feeling really good about his act of charity to the Salvation Army. 
Before he can get through the second double doors, he notices a scale and remembers that since Thanksgiving, he's been feeling a little extra weight around his gut. So he jumps on the scale, and sure enough, it confirms his suspicions, and he says to himself, I need to lose some weight after Christmas. He gets off the scale, he is now inside the store, and he's immediately met with a big, beautifully colorful balloon that says, Happy Birthday. And he knows his daughter would love that as an added touch to her birthday party. And so the man grabs the balloon, and the balloon is stationed next to some BOGO items at a particular store that I won't name, and he decides to rifle through the BOGO items, and to his delight, he finds several things that his family regularly eats, including tortilla shells, peanut butter, and soy sauce. And so he throws at least two or four of each of them into the cart and begins to head toward the checkout line. And at that moment, a word pops into his mind, and he cannot figure out why, but the word is soda. Lucky for this man, there is a refrigerator of 20-ounce Coke items next to the checkout line. So he happily opens it, grabs his Coke Zero, places it on with the rest of his items, and much to his thrill and delight, the entire bill comes to a mere $22.73. On the way home to his wife, the man thinks to himself, it has been such a productive hour. I cannot wait to see my wife's face when I walk through the door. <laughs> now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but you might have been that guy, or wives, you might have your elbow buried deeply into your husband's ribs. We've been there, right? The intentions were good, we did a lot of right things along the way, but we missed the one most essential thing we were asked to do. What 1 Corinthians 13 is going to teach us in a moment, and what I believe the entire balance of the New Testament displays, is that love is the essential thing. It is the one thing above all other things that, that God said, if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you are going to enter into my love, both received and also given to others. What good is it, friends, if we do all the right things along the way, but we miss out on what is most essential? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 sounds like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know only in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so now, faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. So again, I'm gonna, I want to group those attributes in verses 4 through 8 into three 
categories or groups, the first being this, the first essential commitment. If you're going to increase in your love for people, if you're going to become a person who is marked by the love of God, you're going to have to learn to embrace hardships. You may ask, where, where am I getting that in the passage? I would offer these attributes. Love is patient. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It bears all things. It endures all things. One, one pastor I know said it like this. You know when you press your thumb, if you've ever done this, if you ever pressed your thumb on a watermelon seed, it's a great way to put somebody's eye out. It just like shoots out, you know? And the idea is that a watermelon seed, because of the way it's designed and because it's slippery and slick, when it experiences pressure, it's gone. And some of us approach life in a similar way. The moment hardships come into our lives, the moment obstacles come, we begin to shut down. We're not patient. We're not enduring of all things. We are quickly irritable and resentful. I've made a practice of the last couple of weeks of just reading 1 Corinthians 13 in its entirety every day, and three words keep jumping out at me when I'm not reading it. Love is patient. Y'all, if we could start there, if we could figure that piece out, think about all of the things that would come with it. If we can learn to embrace hardships, go through challenges, difficulties, we can begin to learn how to love. There was a popular TV show once upon a time called Mythbusters, and in this TV show, if you're not familiar with it, it was uh, kind of pseudo-scientists who were trying to demonstrate popular myths, things that almost everybody believes universally, and demonstrating that those beliefs actually aren't factual. They're actually not true. I, I want to bust a myth related to love today, and it's one that most people in the world believe is true, and it is not true. Most people in the world believe that love is a feeling that takes hold of me based on the way another person looks, the way that they treat me, or other desirable characteristics that they have. And so we say things like, I fell in love, or even I can't help falling in love. But love doesn't work that way. If love worked that way, we would never get Romans chapter 5 verse 8, which says God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners, undesirable, unimpressive, far from God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was the love of God for us based on who he is, not based on who we are, that saved us. Time to time I'll have a thought or hear from another person something like this. I used to love her, but she is constantly nagging me now. Or maybe a woman will say, I was in love when we got married, but he has changed. And what a person is saying when they articulate something like that is, I'm not able to love him or her because he or she, dot, dot, dot. Biblical love doesn't work that way. Biblical love does not need good circumstances. It doesn't need kind words. It doesn't need the other person to be in a better place. Biblical love comes from the essence of who we are as image bearers, followers of Jesus. God modeled it for us by sending Jesus to save us while we were sinners. And he's called us to embrace the really, really hard thing of loving people who sometimes don't feel deserving of our love. Let me say it this way. God does not command what is beyond our control. The fact that we are commanded to love means that the control center for that decision is within us and not within the other person. 
When we commit to love, we find that hardships are not obstacles in the way of love, but rather the means by which God is teaching us to love. You go, man, I'll I'll be able to love her when she... I, I could love him if he would just... No, no, no. Those aren't the obstacles. Those are the means by which God is teaching you to love. That's, that's the school of love that you have entered. And if you say to yourself, I'm not willing to embrace hardships. I thought this should be easier. Your love will be nothing more than a fickle feeling that fades over time. But love, again, is not like that. The middle line of the serenity prayer, some of you would know in, in recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Celebrate Recovery, which is a ministry that we have here at the church, uh, me at, at one of our other campuses. If you're in reco- recovery, you have probably come across the serenity prayer. And the beginning of the serenity prayer says, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Most people stop there and don't know that that's the beginning of a much longer prayer that is fully and completely a Christian and Christ-centered prayer for help. The middle line in the longer, full, original serenity prayer says this, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace. See, the, the, the reason sometimes that compulsive attitudes and behaviors or even addictions take hold of us is largely because when hardships come into our life, and let me say sometimes very real, legitimate, or even traumatic hardships, we learn to find the path of least resistance. We learn to find things that make us feel good or can escape the pain. And when over time we practice that response, a a stronghold is taken in our lives that becomes that addiction that we cannot break. And so in recovery, we are taught to confront this issue that hardships are not to be run away from, but that hardships are the pathway to peace itself. I don't get to go around them. I can only go through them. Love runs toward pain like water flows toward the lowest surface point. It's the most natural thing in the world. Not artificial, not fake, not contrived. Love finds pain. That's, that's why when Jesus came, he said, the, good new, the Spirit of God is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the captives. The love of God in Jesus ran to those that were most in need of it, even running all the way to a cross where he gave his life and died because Jesus in the love of God, was committed to embracing hardships for our salvation. And lo and behold, we find in Scripture that he is our model and our example for love. And so from there, as we learn this commitment of embracing hardships, we can move on to step two, which is the second essential commitment of elevating others. The characteristics from the passage I'm grouping here is these. Love is kind, we might say kind to others. It is not proud, it is not envious of others, it is not boastful, and it does not insist on its own way. Now, when we talk about this first commitment, embracing hardships, the the reality is simply that some of us have trouble doing that because we have not built any capacity into our lives. If I don't have any time, any margin in my schedule, if I don't have any margin in my budget, then every inconvenience becomes an opportunity for anger. I don't have time to deal with this child who's out of line. I don't have time to reckon with this coworker or this boss or this employee. When we lack margin, what comes out is a lack of willingness to embrace hardships. 
But this second commitment is a little different in this way. It's not just a capacity issue. It is an intentionality issue. Over the years, I have driven some cars that were not great cars, and one of the things that often happens is that the alignment goes out on the vehicle, which means if you were ever to see me on the road and I'm gripping my steering wheel tight, it's probably because if I let go, what happens? It ends up in a ditch. Other people can let go of their steering wheel for a few seconds, and they're fine because their alignment is in place. But when the alignment goes out of a car, it means that I never get to just put it on autopilot. I have to grip the wheel because the natural bent of the vehicle is toward the wrong direction. We find in Scripture that because of sin, the natural bent of our heart is in the wrong direction. Rather than embracing the difficulties that life throws us, rather than letting others be elevated and even elevating them ourselves, the natural bent is to look out for ourselves, to take the path of least resistance, and to make sure that we've cared for number one, which is almost always who? It's me. Take care of myself. Get my way. Get what I want. In the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, when Paul says love doesn't insist on its own way, Other translations put it this way, love is not self-seeking. Its end goal isn't what's in it for me. Its its greatest desired outcome is what can I get out of the situation. Now let me share with you a mnemonic device. You may want to write this down. and, And I hope and pray that this expression, maybe this comes to mind when you need to remember that love is not self seeking. Here here's the device or the the expression. Deference makes the difference. Deference makes the difference. When I defer what I want, my priorities, for the sake of love, it is what makes the difference in relationships. It is what then positions me to be in relationships in a way that is honoring to God and I find personally satisfying. The the great paradox is that people that are living for themselves, putting themselves number one, find that they can never fully satisfy themselves. And they're frustrated and they're irritable. And every person who doesn't cater to their needs and desires, every person that doesn't recognize them as the center of the universe, becomes a frustration and inconvenience. But when, in contrast to that, we get very, very comfortable with others being elevated, when we get comfortable moving to the back of the line, taking the parking spot further from the building, letting our wife or husband have the last word, when we get comfortable, in other words, being humbled, we find our ability to love begins to increase. And and this is exactly what Jesus modeled and what Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 2. He said, Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Another way to translate that would to be uh, to say Jesus set aside his preference for heaven, for glory, for perfect and uninterrupted intimacy with Father God. He set all of that aside to love us and to save us. Now most of us would affirm that and go, yay Jesus, you loved us, you saved us. We agree with that. But Paul's point is actually something much bigger than that. Paul's whole point in talking about this act of Jesus giving up heaven to live on our earth, to suffer, to hunger, to thirst, 
to be ridiculed and mocked, to be crucified on a cross, is that he begins by saying, have this mind in yourselves. Ouch. Does scripture really mean that I'm supposed to look like Jesus in the way that I love other people? Absolutely it does. And you should be saying, Chris, I can't do that. I, I don't have the ability to love like Jesus did, which I would say, join the club. I don't either. I, I've walked with God for about 25 years, but I'm still a long way from figuring out how to love even the people in my life well, much less those who wrong me. And so what I do every day, or at least the days when I'm thinking straight and, and make it a priority, is I come to the Father and I say, God, I can't love as I ought to love. I don't have the capacity, I, I don't have the intentionality to consistently and, and every day practice love toward my wife, toward my kids, my coworkers. Like, I can't do that in my own strength. Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help me to be your love today? And so, I'm with you. <laughs> I didn't, when I passed my seminary classes, when I was ordained into ministry, I didn't get this like thing that goes, now I can love people better. They don't teach you that in seminary. You learn that in daily life. You learn that when friction comes. When the person disappoints you, wrongs you, speaks over you, insults you, interrupts you, you learn in the embracing of hardships to consistently elevate the other person and seek their good. So practical questions. How do you feel when a coworker receives recognition or a promotion that you feel like you deserved? Parents, how do you respond when someone else's child gets the position or the role that your child tried out for? Kids and students, what about when it's you? When you thought you should have got that position on the team or that role in the play or the musical, but it went to somebody else, do you celebrate that? Do you do what scripture says, rejoice with those who rejoice, or do you immediately turn and go, but I should have, but I didn't? I had a conversation with one of my children recently and I said, look, you can take that approach, but that's not going to serve you very well. I love you too much to let you think that the world revolves around you. Learn to get into the habit of seeing other people elevated and say glory to God. Because scripture says something about that. It said God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, and he will raise us up in due time. Love demands that I not put God on my time clock and go, God, it's my time now. But I say, God, in your time, when it is right for my opportunity, when it is best for the world, you do in me what you desire. In the meantime, I'm going to just let other people be praised, elevated, moved forward, and believing that God in that is teaching me to love better. Well, it's possible to embrace hardships. I talked about that being an issue of capacity. And also to elevate others, which is an issue of intentionality, and still fail to truly love, at least from a Christian perspective. We have to confront one more issue, we have to make one more commitment, and that is this. It's a commitment of motivation, and it is a commitment to exalt Christ. Exalting Christ, I see in, the, in these characteristics, not rejoicing at wrongdoing, rejoicing with truth, believing all things, and hoping all things. Paul, in other words, is bringing us back to that the anchor point of what love is, is exalting Jesus. It is an issue of faith, and here... Christian love departs a little bit or goes a little further than what the world would accept as love. It is not Christian love unless Christ is at the center. 
It's not Christian love unless Christ is at the center. I, I've seen a lot of things in my years of pastoring. I, I've seen guys who just love-bombed their wife or their girlfriend because they broke their trust and needed to win them back. Now, that might be an okay place to start, might be, but that isn't love. Because what happens is, is as soon as they win that woman back, as soon as they, they get what they were going after, they revert back into their pattern. And if they're not followers of Jesus, and not just followers, if they don't have Christ at the center, what you're going to find, and this is a, a PSA especially to those who are single or single again, what you're going to find if the person on the other end of that relationship is not committed to Christ, to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then when things get tough and when time and trouble do its work, when they go to this well to get love for you, they're going to find it dry and empty. Ladies, any man through attraction and infatuation can look like a super loving guy for a few weeks or a few months. Guys, any woman for a little while can put her best foot forward and fool you into thinking they're head over heels for you. We need to go a little deeper than that and ask the honest question, is love evident in this person's life? The way they treat their parents or treated their parents? The way they treat their siblings, if that's in play, the way they treat other people in their life, that's what you're going to be getting in year five. And if they're not somebody who exalts Christ and they're trying to do it in their strength, your relational vehicle is going to break down about two miles down the road and you're going to go, what happened? And what happened is what looked like love wasn't rooted in faith. The person had no well from which to love you well. I didn't mean to do that wordplay, but that was pretty cool. <laughs> There are many ways to love someone by the world's standards, and any motivation will do. But Christian love is different because it gives without any expectation. Listen, if you're a Christian, you should never say these words, you owe me one. No, they don't. Until you've outgiven God, nobody owes you anything. The Apostle Paul said, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. No one is in my debt. I'm actually in the debt of everyone else because Jesus loved me so much. How can I do anything but love and forgive others? And so not only should Christ be the motivation behind our love, but he is also the means by which we love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God because God is, what? Love. Uh, you might be able to prove me wrong, but I, in all my study of Scripture, have not found another attribute in which Scripture says God is fill-in-the-blank, period. It says it alone about love. And, and, and by the way, this is super important. It's not that we're interpreting God through our idea of love. It's not like we go, oh, I think I know what love is. Oh, and that's what God's like. No, no, no. We look to the scripture to see, God, what are you like? And then we find that what God does is fully and always bathed in love, and we attempt to do that. Does that make sense? So scripture is driving our idea of what love is, not culture. And when we look to the scripture, we find that the essence of who God is, the very core of his being, is a loving God. We know in Genesis chapter 1 that God is the author of life. Uh, you can breathe without believing in God, but you can't breathe apart from God. The, the air, the oxygen that people use to curse God or deny his existence, 
That's supplied by God, the great irony. And in the same way, as you can't live apart from God, you can't love apart from God. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't, you can't listen to enough good love songs or, or watch enough inspiring movies or read enough clever quotes. God is the source of love, and therefore, if I'm going to continually love the people in my life, I must have him at the center. Now, it's interesting to note that in 1 Corinthians 13, the name of Jesus never appears, and in fact, the name of God never appears in the passage. And someone might go, well, maybe Paul wasn't thinking about God. Maybe he wasn't thinking about the love of Jesus. He's just talking about love in general, is kind, it's patient. And this would be my argument to that. One, Paul was always thinking about Jesus. <laughs> like, you put him anywhere, in prison, a shipwreck, he's like, man, let's lead people to Jesus. That's his center. But I would also say it because of this. All of the, the good works, uh, the, the parable, you know, all the, the filling up of the gas tank and the tires and the air and all the, all the stuff that Paul was doing was based on law, was based on righteousness of his own. What changed was that in the love of God, Jesus encountered him on a road to Damascus and, and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And though the question was a confrontation, the invitation was for Saul to come to know Jesus as his Savior and to embrace the love of God for him. Everything before that encounter was law for, for Paul. Everything after the encounter was love. I mean, this was a paradigm shift for him. And it is Paul who said, love is the fulfillment of the law. You go, man, Paul, you knew all those 613 commands. He says, yes, and when I hold each of those up, when I pull each of those out, I go, this is nothing more than an expression of love. To not murder, to honor God, to honor your parents, your, you, you know, to, to honor the Sabbath, to not covet and steal. All of this is the love of God. And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our vision for this church, friends, is that it is a place where every person who steps foot on our campus would feel both the love of God for them and also the love of God's people to them. That, that's the, the metric that we care about. Now, along the way, we need to put on programs that aren't distracting. We need to have a, a music uh, experience that, that is able to worship God collectively. We need to teach the word. We need to have programs and events that draw people. But the greater vision is that every person who encounters us encounters the love of God in us and through us. That this place become a place where God's love reigns. And not only that, but that we as a people, when we go from here, we take that love of God with us and it begins to transform workplaces, neighborhoods, homes, marriages. You go, Chris, how is that possible? Well, it can't happen overnight. But if you will make these commitments to love, to continually die to yourself, to allow the love of God to flow in and through you, give it time, stay the course, and watch the world around you be transformed. I want to close with an opportunity, a very practical thing that, that each of you can engage with. I pray that you do. And I want to ask you to go ahead and get your phone out so you can participate in this. Um, we've created a text line, and some of you won't be surprised to know that that number is 40777. And if you will text the word love to 40777, 
then beginning this afternoon and every day up to Christmas Day, and including Christmas, you're going to get a text that's going to say something like this, love is kind, and then a way to apply kindness in your world on that day. This started as a challenge to our men, but I thought, man, it's not just men, maybe it's mostly men, but it's not just men that need to figure out this love thing. We could all stand to be reminded, I could stand to be reminded that love is what matters most and to take the love of God to others for their good. So with that, text the word love to 40777. I'm going to pray and then the team will lead us in a closing song of worship. God, we are uh, so grateful that what we find at the, at the core of who you are is not wrath, anger, judgment. God, we recognize you are a holy God and yet you're Holiness demonstrates and manifests itself as something called love, and we can't even comprehend that, God. We fall short on both ends, and yet you came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus, would you help us to love the world like you loved and loved the world? Would you help us to to die to ourselves so that others can experience good? Would you help us to be patient with our kids, kind to our spouses? Would you help us see breakthrough in the way that we engage with coworkers and neighbors? God, would you help us to embody love today, throughout this Christmas season, and every day beyond, because we ask it in the name that is love, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.